Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode. We are getting this warmed up Monday night. It is 10.37 p.m. As usual, I have our co-pilots for the listener Q&A show, our cats, Rocky and Rosie in particular, who are fighting behind me. Uh, Thanks for taking it easy on me this week, guys. As I stumble to say words out of my mouth, as I do on my polished, unpolished, semi-polished turd of a show here. Uh, Last week, we had 19 million questions y'all sent in, which is fun, trying to get through those. We're not doing a three-hour listener Q&A episode this week, though, thankfully. So, at least so far, you've taken taken it easy on me. Got about... I don't know how many here in front of me. Enough, enough to try and get at least the first half of the show done tonight. And then tomorrow night, uh, when we get back home, I will try and knock out the rest of it. And on Wednesday, we will have our French fry, my French fry, the French fry to my hamburger, Sebastian Bourdais, joining us to talk about spring training at Circuit of the Americas, where it's meant to rain like mad. He's supposed to be in the car on Tuesday, and then Dalton Kellett is meant to take over on Wednesday. So Seb said he would go and try and find a quiet place in the media center to field your questions there. And that's provided he's not in the car, which if you didn't hear that conversation, well, that was towards the end, I believe, of last week's listener Q&A show. So who knows? We might have to adjust the plans if good old Sebastien from Le Mans needs to do two days of work at Circuit of the Americas for AJ Foyt Racing, the team that hates me, and I love it. Hey, you know, it's not often you get an entire team to hate you. I'd say I'm doing a pretty good job. A couple of quick things before we get rolling with your Q&A here. So this Friday, I believe we are going to have Mr. Penske and some other fine folks, the new owners of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and the IndyCar Series, giving a 100 days out report, something along those lines, ahead of the Indy 500. I would love to tell you I know what they're going to talk about. I do not. I believe it's just going to be some of their thoughts and ideas, maybe some plans they've come up with. I don't know. In the relatively short period in which they've become the actual true owners not just the folks who said they were going to buy it when it was announced, but post-transaction. They've had, what, a little over a month now, I believe. So who knows what's going to happen here on Friday the 14th, but I do know that the good old rumors on uh, the paddock and whatnot say that we're going to hear from the folks in charge and who own the stuff. Going to say congratulations once again to J.J. Gertler. As we do each week on the Week in IndyCar Listener Q&A, we look back to the questions that came in from the previous episode. Whomever's question got the most likes in this very democratic system. Our sponsors at torontomotorsports.com. Send that person a free Week in IndyCar t-shirt, a mug, some stickers, who knows what. JJ, who I believe might have won, I don't know, a month ago, six weeks ago, well, buddy, you're up again. So, and I got to admit, you're probably making it hard because you send in fun stuff. 
just about every week. The weeks you don't, boy, you really got to think about that, JJ. Come on, you can do better. Uh, Kidding aside, his question for last week's guest, Tony Kanon, who said, Mr. Kanon, let's settle this once and for all. Is Chip Ganassi, in fact, adorable? Well, that got the most likes. So I'm sure I have your email address, but send it to me again. JJ will get you connected with torontomotorsports.com, and they'll send you free stuff. Speaking of this little system we have here, so every week, call out for questions for the Weekend IndyCar Listener Q&A, and also, if you happen to listen to it, my Weekend Sports Cars show that I do with my pal Graham Goodwin, and we ask for questions on Facebook, on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page. Please join it, save it, like it, do something to it. Also on Twitter, tend to do that with my at Marshall Pruitt handle there. And then also for this show, we have the Reddit IndyCar group that sends in questions. Those are the places to submit your questions. If you want to be in contention to get free stuff from torontomotorsports.com, that only happens at one of those destinations, that being the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page. I would kindly ask, and I seem to be doing this on a more frequent basis of late, please use the call for questions on Twitter or Facebook as the place to send your questions. The amount of places that I get them is just really amusing. Uh, Instagram direct message was one that came in. Uh, I forget where I had another one, but it was, again, just like, wow, uh, there's so much easier ways to do this. Please just go to the Facebook page where the call for questions happens to be or Twitter. So it's all in a group. Because I can't keep track of all this stuff coming in from personal email and text. And the only thing I haven't received yet is a letter (laughs) in the mail with a question. But knowing some of you, I'll probably get one of those just out of spite. So anyways, if you could use the uh, aforementioned places, it makes it oh so much easier to try and assemble them all and answer them. Need to say thank you, as always, to Cooper Tires for what they do for us and have done for us. Now we are in our third year of doing this fun little thing together. Also the Justice Brothers, now into year two. We've already spoken about torontomotorsports.com. Definitely need to say thank you as well to Bell Racing Helmets USA. Those are our four partners who make this all possible and make me a happy boy. So guess what? We're ready to go. That's it. Uh, I even hit record on this. That's pretty amazing, too. So the unpolished turd is about to fly, starting with Jordan Darwin. Jordan Darwin. Echo voice. I forgot to hit mute. How's that? That's a little bit better. I told you this was a polished turd. I'm just leaving it in. All right. And I'm not even drunk, for real. I mean, I've got, you know, some of a beer left, but yeah, ah, this is hilarious. At least for me, I amuse myself. You know how good of a thing that is in life? You know, I've grown up on comedy. I love comedy, truly, since I was like six years old. Just nothing but a passion for comedy. The fact that 
I don't necessarily need others to make me laugh. I can just laugh at my own idiocy. Man, I'm a pretty fortunate guy. And trust me, I keep myself laughing all the time. Why? Because I'm a damn fool. Jordan Darwin says, MP is attending spring training a better way for a fan to get better access to IndyCar. Asking for a friend. Well, it is, Jordan. Probably when it's not raining all over your head and weather is nasty. And trust me, when the weather's nasty in Austin, Texas, I mean, there are some places where it's actually kind of beautiful, right? Uh, Just realize you're getting wet, but at least it might be picturesque. At least it might not be so bad. When I've been at Coda in December, January, February, and it's bad, like just chill to the bone. Everything is just a murky gray and beige and blah. And then it's raining on top of your head as well. So, yeah, unlike some places where rain is not that much of a nuisance, I've only ever known it to make life at Coda pretty miserable. So, in non-rain Coda spring training, yes, awesome place to go, friendly paddock, see lots of drivers, lots of cars, lots of crew, schedule is laid out to where Folks run twice a day. They're on track a long time during those two sessions per day. But between them, it's not so crazy and stressed and run and go and rush for the team. So uh, at least as I have seen it, it appears to be a place where if you're a fan, it's kind kind of a unique experience you might enjoy. So I would say for sure, definitely attend if you can let's go to Stephen Olaf says MP with the news of Scotty McLaughlin taking the fourth Penske seat. The Indianapolis grand prix is the Indy 500 sounding more like Elio Swan song, at least for Roger. Hmm. You know, Stephen, I had a bit of a thought along this line myself. Hashtag me personally. My initial thought was to tell you that Roger is always performance-minded. And so if Elio performs well again at the 500, then he's going to earn yet another invite. Would also say that I seem to recall a guy by the name of Elio Castroneves performing incredibly well through the 2017 season. And a guy named Juan Monterrier tying in points or whatever it was uh, with Roger in IndyCar and being super sharp there too. And yeah, uh, the two of them being kind of stood down. And I might be wrong on that year with Elio, but regardless, uh, I seem to recall Roger with both Elio and JPM having them in a pretty darn competitive place in IndyCar and still standing them down. Granted, Roger had a new sports car program kicking off with Acura, and these are two fine additions to move in, high-profile guys. They certainly fit the need. But I would say there was an argument to be made, and I think Elio's continued to make that argument, Stephen, that he wasn't exactly, you know, off the pace, farting around, less of a contributor, less of a threat and therefore maybe felt like the timing was actually premature. 
So that maybe kicks the legs out from under my immediate response. I'd say there's something practical here. If Elio goes out and is quick, is in the fast nine, runs and finishes somewhere in the top three, it's going to be hard, I would imagine, to stand him down come 2021. At the same time, uh, if McLaughlin is quick like a bunny, not necessarily Tuesday, Wednesday here at spring training, but if he makes his presence felt at the Indy GP, uh, I really do think they're going to have to weigh the promise and potential that he shows with how much lead time they think they have with Elio. One last quick thing to mention here, if we're talking sponsors, whether it's a Pennzoil or any other brand, those that have been behind Elio's recent Indy 500s, man, they love themselves some Castro Neves. I mean, you know, you just want to talk about someone you can build your commercials around. That's exactly what they've done. National advertising uh, with Elio uh, or any of the other brands that he's been heavily involved with. So if we're talking about paying for it, uh, Elio sure makes it pretty darn easy to find sponsors and keep those sponsors happy. Would Scotty McLaughlin necessarily satisfy those sponsors if he were to be in Elio's seat next year at the 500? Maybe a full season as well. As well I don't know. Um, boy, that might be a little bit more of a challenge. So that's the thing where I don't have an answer for you because there's so many possible areas of value Roger might weigh. Is Elio definitely reaching the end of his runway at the 500? Without a question. Is he still effective and can he still be a threat for the win? I absolutely believe so. Is it easier to sell sponsors or keep sponsors affiliated with him compared to Scott? I'd have to believe so. But if Scott shows Roger something that intrigues him and Tim Sindrick, a little glimpse at Coda, but primarily at the Indy GP. Uh, you might be onto something here, my friend. All right, we're going to go to our pal Joe Secchi 100, who had some great stuff for us last week from the Reddit group. And uh, today, a bunch of questions about silly season. After months of radio silence, we've finally got some official news from Carlin racing that Max Chilton will race the 59 car, rumored to share his car with Daly, although Daly is driving Fred Carpenter racing. Uh, so we'll see how that works out. But in uh, the 31 car will be shared by Felipe Nazar and Sete Camara. How would you rate their driver lineup this year? Assuming they have stability, I think it's a major step up compared to last year. We'll have other questions here, but I'll get to this one first. So Felipe Nazar and young Sete Camara... Sergio Sete Camara, they have been signed only for the test, according to the team. I would offer that while I'm not at Coda, I did speak with a friend of mine today who said, man, for someone who is only testing for the team, it sure was odd to see Felipe in a brand new, fully decked out, all the sponsors, all the, you know, all the logos, everything, Carlin Racing fire suit not the kind of generic you know off the shelf 
sew a couple of patches on there real quickly type just because you're coming out to do this test but like wow this looks like they knew this was happening in advance put in the order in advance and he is showing up at least dressed like you would expect any of the full season drivers to be we know full season would be a bit of a challenge since felipe has an action express racing contract to compete in imsa I have heard that there is limited interest with Felipe in terms of doing the ovals this year. I've also heard the same thing about Sete Kamara. And uh, Felipe and I texted a bit this morning, but uh, didn't get a chance to actually get on the phone and catch up. Um, so, yeah, I- I've heard, I'm not claiming this to be accurate, but I've heard Kamara is thinking about returning for another season of Formula 2, where he finished fourth overall last year and was highly competitive and won some races. This, I would say this, if Felipe is going to be in the car, which I think he will and hope he will, I've been kind of regularly suggesting to IndyCar teams for a couple years now, please, Make him drive car because him fast. Uh, I believe Felipe will be an absolute asset and the fastest thing that Carlin has seen, period, in IndyCar. Uh, Kamara, I don't know. I'd love to see the kid here. I've heard that he his sponsors have not exactly flooded uh, his, his pockets with money to bring, which could be a little bit of an issue. Um, would say that I've heard as well, dear Joe Secchi 100 and interested IndyCar fans, that a fairly badass young American by the name of R.C. Enerson is said to be getting close to being able to do a handful of races with the team this year, maybe as a preview to a full season deal next year. What I think we're going to see and whether it's daily doing the ovals, racing against his boss, Ed Carpenter, in the car he normally drives while being with Carla. Again, I don't know how that might work out. Um, I would just say that what this looks like is another year where the team will be replacing a lot of names on both cars, having to find folks to pay for the opportunity or, as we saw last year with Pato Award, the team coming out of pocket a bit to have a bit of a, a shoe, a bit of a gun in the car to hopefully attract more interest. There's also a need to run competitively. And this is maybe a good thing to crack open very quickly. So, I'd say in the past... Not the too distant past, but in the past with the IndyCar Leader Circle program, where the series awards a roughly $1 to $1.1 million contract to every team that shows up to all the races, well, there was a bit of a cutoff line. Number would seemingly change a little bit from year to year. Might have to be those who made the top 20, the top 22, there was at one point a little bit of a you got to earn it thing 
And so for the teams who didn't necessarily demonstrate a lot of competitiveness, IndyCar would at times say, yeah, we're not going to give you money because it really doesn't look like you're trying. And if you're not trying, why should we reward you for that? Just showing up and being bad and making a minimal effort? Eh, that's not what we had in mind here. I'm not claiming to have any inside knowledge on this, but I would say with IndyCar looking at 24, 25 cars full-time this year, a couple more at select rounds outside of the Indy 500, uh, I would say the leader circle thing could be something where the series and its new owners might take a little bit of a harsher look at how money is being handed out. Are we just going to give you money for showing up or do we need to set some sort of performance criteria in order for you to qualify for it? They may happily and willfully pay it out to all full-time teams. Does that mean that under the new regime, they would maybe not, you know, put some incentives there? Really want to see you try and bring your best as best you can at whatever whatever level you're at. I think it just might be something where Carlin, and this is not specific to Carlin, this would be anybody running a full-time team, but Carlin with two cars and a need apparently to cycle a number of drivers through for the year in both, since Max Chilton's only doing the road and street courses, leaving the ovals open. We're not exactly sure what's going to happen with the 31 car, who all is going to be in it and when, but I think this might be a scenario where the series says, hey, you know, if this Nazar guy is pretty darn quick, uh, maybe you need to do more to make sure he's in the car more often than not because we'd rather see you giving folks the fight, fin- getting better finishes, moving further up the team's championship, and therefore ensuring that this leader circle money comes your way. So just a little thought there. Um, asks, Joseki asks, can you clarify a bit the thought process of HPD dealing with Honda, Andretti, and Alonso? From your narration of the events in last week's podcast, the new management there doesn't inspire much confidence. They never really asked Honda about Alonso until the very last second. That sounds very, very stupid to me for so many different reasons. Andretti is their biggest partner in IndyCar, and they made them look like idiots in front of all the sponsors they lined up for Indy. I think this was a case of overestimation of the ability to push something through. I don't think it was incompetence or anything like that. Uh, All of this I know came from a highly positive place of trying to make this happen. I would say there have been some very strong, strong lessons in how to approach such things. If it had to be done over again, I think that the proverbial call to the mothership in Japan happens two minutes after Michael Andretti was on the phone saying, hey, Alonzo, uh, I think we could do this. Can we get a motor? Uh, I think the guarantee, I think the business aspect of that gets done right away. Reached out to the mothership, 
They said yes. They said no. They said conditionally yes. If Fernando makes a public apology, if whatever. Um, As I joke sometimes, I'm very, I feel like I have won each morning when I step out of the house and got the sequence right of underwear before pants. Um, <laughs> don't always get that right. You know, sometimes you, uh, you get in the elevator in the morning to head to the track. You look down and go, ah, dang it. Got, got my underwear on the outside again. I got the, uh, got the sequence wrong. Um, as I have heard this, this was a pants first, then underwear type scenario. And yeah, not good. Uh, last question from Joseki is home coast actually doing anything this year. I heard a lot of talks from Ricardo, but nothing official has been announced yet. Well, let me grab my phone here and I'm going to go to a fine little communications app where I called Ricardo this morning. He responded saying, sorry, I'm in a meeting. I responded by saying nothing to be sorry about. Give me a ring when you are clear. That was at 9 a.m. It is 11.05 p.m. I would say 14 hours and five minutes later, I'm not, I'm, how's this? I hope the meeting's going well, because it sounds like it's running late. Um, Ricardo does something that is not super uncommon, and that's when they either have, when a team owner or whomever has nothing to say or does not want to talk because they are working on something, it's not uncommon to get no response or some form of, hey, I'm busy kind of thing, and then nothing. So it has been a number of months since Ricardo and I actually spoke. Uh but I hope he is very well. Um, love the guy. Want to hear about him getting on track with something. Uh, and I hope that he and I can actually speak words to one another instead of text. And so I can then give you an update. So I'm going to try Ricky tomorrow and see if that meeting's over with. Let's go to Justin Lee Sembler. That is a great name. Says Marshall, I appreciate your commentary in Uppity. Having become a racing fan after Willie T. Ribb's success in Imsen Trans Am, my only experience seeing him drive was in the kart days beginning in 1990 or so. Given those rides were with underfunded teams, and given Willie T.'s obvious talent, I'm wondering what you think the over-under would have been had he been given a ride with a top-tier IndyCar team in terms of wins or even a championship. You know, I was having this conversation a couple of days ago when my buddy Jake Query gave me a ring, actually to talk about uppity and a very similar topic. And as I mentioned to Jake uh, during our phone call, I do not think that my 
dear friend Mr. Ribs was an IndyCar champion in waiting or necessarily an IndyCar race winner in waiting if positioned with a bigger and better team. Having watched Willie intently, as you mentioned in the uh, Imsen Trans Am days, those were cars that fit him perfectly. Uh, they were his spirit animals. Uh, Willie T was a boxer. And I, I know that they showed some of that in the documentary. He was an actual like fighter fighter, like fighting other people, not just punching a punching bag guy. Those IMSA and Trans Am GT cars, those fit Willie perfectly driving style wise, even the Atlantic cars that he didn't get to drive that often, but was so fast in. I know this is an audio forum and you can't see it, but I've kind of got my arms flexed and hands like they're on the steering wheel and my shoulders are kind of up and flared out. They're very muscular type cars in terms of driving. It's not a fingertips type, just, you know, as if you're just, holding on to something that's so fragile it's about to break. Atlantic cars, the GTO cars, the Trans Am cars. It's essentially like being in a fist fight with the car inside the cockpit. So no surprise to me at all, Justin, that Willie was a beast in those cars. As I watched his progression into... GTP cars, stepping up with Dan Gurney from the Toyota Celica GTO car, for example, into the HF89 GTP machine. I did not really see those same demonstrations of holy cow speed. And I don't want to say confidence. Willie never lacked confidence, but these were much faster cars, more powerful cars. But they were more fingertip based. I mean, again, you had to drive them hard. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that these are just, you know, little British roadsters that uh, are dainty. Not at all. But with the speed, with the downforce, with the just deeper, farther edge that those cars lived on, they are not something that you could drive sideways, get crossed up drive overly hard and have them respond in a positive way. And so when Willie got into GTP, I was happy for him. He wasn't necessarily the go-to guy in those cars. When he got into IndyCar, some of the street races, we definitely saw Willie where you could be a little bit more physical with the car. Because you weren't, you know, the, the, the tighter turner, turns, I was about to say turners, the tighter turners, you could be a little more physical with them there and get away with it. But by and large, I just did not see the vehicles match the driver. And that happens sometimes. It goes both ways, many ways. You know, Dario Franchitti, IndyCar champion, Indy 500 winner, goes straight into NASCAR, didn't make sense to him. Now he said, give me an, if I had had another year, I think I could have really figured it out. But, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not 
saying he's wrong. I'm just saying driving style wise, knowing having seen him drive for so long style wise, I don't know if I really ever equated his driving style to matching those stock cars. Frankly, Justin, that's what I saw with Willie T and IndyCar. There just was not that intuitive man connected to machine making outrageous speed, living on the edge and obliterating everybody. There were times where he had good cars, never great cars. He could be quick. He certainly had the talent to be in IndyCar. That's not a question. I never saw much to make me believe that those cars were in sync with him. Therefore, hashtag bye, bye, bye. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Just didn't seem to be the thing. So, yeah, I love the idea of Willie being a a Penske team away from wins and a championship, but that to me would have been a bit of a surprise. Um, It's not what I witnessed, at least. Let's go to SPXJ. Says, hey, MP, long time, first time. Well, awesome. First time, long time for me. I don't know. Uh, if the reports are true that Connor Daly is driving the non-Indy ovals for Carlin and everything else for Ed Carpenter Racing, how is that made possible between the two teams? Is information going to be withheld from Connor from either or both teams because he drives for two different teams? Or are the setup differences between Indy and all the other ovals significant enough to not cause concern says i appreciate your show and hope you and your wife are doing well well thank you we're now at uh 11 by the way had to uh, go help mrs pruitt for a little bit here uh so all right i guess i should have recognized it in the earlier question from our pal joseki 100 i would assume during the media day which i am not at uh, something was said by Connor or somebody suggesting that he will be in the max, all caps, max mobile. Um, so, yeah, maybe the huh type response I had to that during Joseki's question. Well, again, we'll just I'm going to default to the this is my polished turd. Uh, so sorry. Um, I don't know if any of this is true. So. I'm just going to run with it that it seems like it could be possible. The main thing that would come to mind here is yes, indeed. Ed Carpenter, who is a mighty fine human being, a recent guest on our weekend IndyCar show. Uh, he is all about his team as you would hope and expect, which would mean if you might hear Rosie meowing in the background because she likes to do that. Um, I would absolutely expect Ed to keep Connor from any and all oval conversations because that's what makes the most sense for him. I mean, truly the money that they invest to make their cars as quick as possible on ovals. We know that happens to be a particular point of pride for the Ed Carpenter racing team. They absolutely would not want that to be something that could possibly move over to Carlin. That's all independent of Connor who, as someone who's driven for many teams, and to my knowledge, I've never heard him in terms of reputation. Hi, Rose, who's just jumped up on my shoulder and is now sniffing the microphone in my face. 
You are so crazy. Um, I've never heard Connor earn a reputation as a guy who was kind of playing both sides here. Uh, so I don't think that would be a concern. I do not believe Ed Carpenter would be concerned about those things, but concerns or lack of concerns aside, you don't spend a lot of money and then just stand on faith necessarily. This is a business. So I would say that if by chance Connor Daly will be in Carlin's car in the ovals, there would be a significant separation of church and state since Connor as Rosie drags the microphone away with her tail. Thanks, girl. Since Connor is indeed paying for the privilege of being in the car on road and street courses through his good partners at the Air Force, I would not see any way that the team could keep set up information away from him at those events. That would be the real concern of trying to make Carlin a better team by bringing over some of their road and street course information from ECR to CR. Again, I I just, Connor, to my knowledge, to everything that I know, he's not that guy. So there's not a lot that I really think could be done there. If he is in a Carlin car for the ovals, the thing that I'm guessing Carlin would probably only have any real chance of getting off him if this is something he ever wanted to do was from the road and street course stuff. So I don't know. Could may might maybe all these things. Sure. I just really do not see this as much of an issue. If any issue at all, but I would also believe that both teams will probably do their best to make sure that their information does not leave their little purview. I just was struggling to have words fall into my head to say that tends to happen sometimes at 1140 PM on a Monday night. Uh, Tyler Graff says, Hey Marshall, I noticed during media day today that some of the driver's helmets don't have the carbon strip on top of the visor. And some do Tyler asks with the arrow screen, are they able to opt out of them? or out of that safety feature on the helmet? Or did some drivers upgrade to the new F1 grade of helmet with the smaller, stronger shields? Ding, 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 ding. We have a winner. That is indeed it, Tyler. I reached out and spoke to our friends, our show sponsors at Bell Racing Helmets USA, and they said that is indeed the case. There's a smaller number of drivers in the Bell family who have the new super, super latest grade of helmet and the Zylon visor strip that we saw uh, with some helmets, many helmets, frankly, uh, that anti-intrusion air quote strip has been incorporated into the new helmets. So it's no longer an external thing to tack on the top of the visor. I believe... They said three of the Bell athletes, one of them being Joseph Newgarden, defending IndyCar champion. I think Graham Rahal was another, and I might be miss forgetting the third. But three Bell athletes had the new, 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 new latest grade of helmet, uh, where indeed that safety is built directly into the lid. Therefore, you do not need the, uh, the extra Zylon shield. 
I believe by the time we get to St. Pete, just about every single driver will have the newest, latest helmet, no matter what brand they work with. I do hear that our French fry, though, might indeed race at St. Pete with the, quote, previous generation one that requires the Zylon strip so he can auction that sucker off since he and Patrick Long and some other really fine people come together every year, day or two before things get rolling at the St. Pete Grand Prix to raise funds, do a karting event, all benefiting, all frankly inspired by Dan Weldon. So I hear Seb might be going old school for that first race just so he can auction that off and generate some money for that good old thing. Let's go to George O'Donnell. It says, Marshall, whatever happened to the super license point system which IndyCar announced, I think, before the start of the 2019 season. My understanding is that a driver needed to finish in the top three in points in Indy Lights in order to be eligible to drive an IndyCar. The purpose of the point system was to ensure that drivers have achieved sufficient success. And I'm struggling with S's and C's, I guess. Have achieved sufficient success in junior ranks before entering IndyCar competition. If enforced... This would mean that one of the announced drivers for AJ Fort Racing would not have enough points to be allowed to race. We'll go ahead and say his name because we'd like him and root for him, that being Dalton Kellett. Says, long-time listener, but I haven't submitted a question for about two years. Well, you're silly there, George. You got it. Come on, man. Uh, we need you. We need you. And, you know, this is a pretty good one. So I don't know if this is going to be the one that gets you a free something from torontomotorsports.com, but, you know, odds, brother. Up the odds. Um, it says, keeping your wife in my prayers. Yeah, that's really sweet. Uh, this is what I was told by IndyCar president Jay Fry on this subject, not related to young Dalton Kellett of Canada, but... In a very general sense, this methodology is a guideline, not a rule. That is the the key differentiator here, George. So, yes, they did outline all the things that you mentioned. Really tried to put in place the expectations. If you want to show up and drive our stuff... If you've been running here in the States, well, these are kinds of the things that you needed to do and how you kind of sort of needed to perform in them. And if you've done things abroad, here's that general kind of sort of expectation. And if you're coming in out of left field a little bit, someone like, say, an Alex Palou, well, we're going to have to judge you on an individual basis. I would drop Dalton into the individual basis where this is a little bit tricky, George. I went into this last week, so I don't want to go into it too much, but I don't know if I went into this part specifically so heavily without Dalton and the family business and money that can be brought. There isn't a number 14 car on the grid that I know of outside of the five ovals that Tony Kanon will do. And that's because Tony has brought some great partners along 
who want to be a part of his last lap farewell thing. And he's had to work really hard to find the sponsors. Don't just think about the 500, but all five ovals work really hard to cover that off on his own. Sebastian, our French fry, he is not bringing a dollar. He is getting paid. I don't know how much I didn't ask, but whatever the number is, I'm sure it's something. Dalton's dollars. That sounds like a afternoon game show on a really bad local cable channel today on Dalton's dollars. Dalton's dollars make all the difference in putting the number 14 Chevy on track. Were there some other drivers floating around potentially interested? Yes. I've heard those drivers kind of went elsewhere. Not sure the team was interested in all those who rocked up and inquired and had some money to spend, but subtract Dalton and one of the most famous teams in IndyCar owned by one of the most famous drivers of all time with the car number that's one of the most famous of all time might be at risk of not showing up to the majority of the races. I would say that with this scenario, whereas we mentioned last week, we really hope that Dalton, when he climbs into the car, demonstrates enough speed to ease the fears of IndyCar to say, yes, you can come back and race. Uh, what, at Circuit of the Americas? On April 26th, after Seb is done with his first three races in the car, um, I believe IndyCar is doing what I would hope they would do. Uh, This is having to straddle the line. Got to be real honest. Do I think Dalton has the pace to not qualify last? I do. I do. I think there's some places where He's going to be able to, you know, high teens, something like that. Um, You know, if there's a 24-25 car grid, do I think there are some times where he'll be 21st, 22nd, something like that? Yeah, absolutely. But is there a fear that that might not be the case? And we don't necessarily want to say, yeah, man, uh, you're in, you're good, before they've seen him with other cars on track, I believe he tested a car, an Indy car a couple of years ago. Uh, I think for Andretti Autosport, maybe. But actual, here you are, full field, uh, just no training wheels, man. Show us what you got. I'd say George IndyCar wants to see that first, and have left him in a bit of a gray area. If this was a true strict rule, not a guideline. But a written-in-stone rule, yeah, I think we would be in a serious situation here uh, with the 14 car. So, and here's more stuff I guess I've given Foyt to hate me. So this is awesome. It's like every week, uh, just the hatred grows. Is there a hatred tracker we should start? uh, Just see, you know, can we peg the needle one of these days? Um, Yeah, so it's just a, a bad and awkward place, George. The Foyt team, having done terribly the last couple of years, having made some terrible decisions, uh, 
lose their sponsor, faced with AJ coming out of pocket to fund this stuff, which sure doesn't sound like that's something AJ really wants to do. Put in a position where they have to take one or more drivers that might not have might not really get them too fired up, but it's a situation they're in. Those drivers are bringing money, and it's what they need to survive and hopefully improve, hopefully attract sponsors, hopefully get a higher grade of drivers across the board. Yeah, I mean, this sucks. This just sucks, man. This is the year where they pay. They are unfortunately having to pay for all of their mistakes, whether it's hiring choices or the team's most common infraction, which is doing nothing uh, for way too many years. The, well, we're just going to show up and do the same thing over again and expect different results. This is the year where they're having to bite the bullet. I don't really understand why I just use that phrase, but we'll go with it. Um, it's a tough year. So with Dalton, I can see how IndyCar has said, all right, let's give it a shot. And uh, let's really hope that he measures up. And if he doesn't, I am then more worried about how the 14 car gets to the majority of the races. Uh, let's go to Swifty, Swifty, Swifty three says, what's up with Hinchcliffe and his social media announcements? Well, yeah, I feel dumb there. Cause I don't know if he was meant to announce something on Friday. I assumed he did. I mentioned that I thought, I mean, if you're going to post something teasing a Friday thing, and then the Friday thing is just a video of you saying what you've been saying all along. Challenge accepted. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't understand that one. Uh, I think I might have mentioned last week there was a rumor or suggestion that there is some sort of snag. So maybe that led to the non-announcement announcement. I don't know. Um, I know, I think I mentioned, I called James many times and had zero responses. So I guess I reach a point where I say to myself, I've demonstrated my intent to try and communicate clearly. And if there is no intent demonstrated to respond, I take that at its face value. Uh, let's go to Derek Bartoshek. Hey, Derek. And we also have something similar from our pal, right turn lover. Derek says, Marshall, you've talked a lot about future engine regs and what the best path forward might be for IndyCar. I haven't heard anything come up yet. However, in your stream of consciousness, I love the assumption that there's consciousness in the stream about a strategy of following relatively closely to whatever direction F1 decides to go with their future engine regs. That is correct. I have never mentioned that. Um, Derek goes on to say, if F1 is indeed the pinnacle of motorsport, and have manufactured backing with whatever direction they end up choosing, two-stroke, alternate fuels, etc., wouldn't it be wise for IndyCar to follow suit? Maybe with a slightly detuned or simplified version of the F1 engines. But someone like Honda could find synergies, economies of scale, etc., between the two programs or entice more players in the oil gas sector for research, R&D, sponsorship, if alt fuels was the answer? Or would these power units just be too expensive for IndyCar 
and they'll always have to be a step behind for cost purposes. Uh, it's an interesting angle, Derek. Um, IndyCar and F1 are not equal, and, and so I'll just overstate the obvious up front. They are just not equal. This is one is a Rolex watch. The other one is a Swatch. Uh, this is shopping at Neiman Marcus versus the 99 cent store. None of that is meant to speak ill of IndyCar. It's just the dollars involved are so radically different between the two forms of open wheel racing that I don't, I wouldn't say IndyCar is a step behind anything. IndyCar is just its own independent thing. (laughs) There's no real, there's no commonalities other than open wheel vehicle. Uh, And you could say, well, aren't they turbocharged V6s? Yes. Again, I get all that, but this is just choices made by two wholly independent series working with drastically different budgets and manufacturer and sponsor commitments. So where you mentioned here, could an IndyCar maybe follow suit with a slightly detuned or simplified version of the F1 engines? There's nothing, there's no simplified version uh, or detuned. The F1 motors aren't making the internal combustion engine side. It's not making crazy power uh, compared to an IndyCar engine. Um, what we have here is a difference in materials and freedoms, weight, revs. Uh, there's just think of Formula One engines as something extremely exotic. And with most exotic things like that Rolex or that visit to Neiman Marcus, man, you are spending crazy amounts just on everything. And so that's where there's no like Neiman Marcus light. There's no Rolex junior watch brand. That's half off. Uh, it's either that thing in its entirety or nothing. So I I wish there was something that worked here back in the day. You know, there were actual things that were common. If you think about Parnelli Jones, taking what was it two of the Cosworth DFV non-turbo V8 F1 engines he had from his F1 program and deciding to turbocharge and see how that worked well that was amazing that then really sparked what we have today in IndyCar Uh, but the Cosworth DFV was a customer motor was not some super ornate, you know, out of touch, out of reach technology type thing when it made its way into IndyCar in turbocharged form. So we just have something where there's really no working off of the F1 engine model, but in a slightly simplified, cheaper, detuned version for IndyCar. These things are tiny. They are stupid light. They're just, they're amazing. Uh, just <laughs> there's no way to play with that that I know of where it would fit IndyCar's model, which is 
motors that are of a certain minimum weight to avoid lots of crazy expenses on, you know, super, super alloy, this, that, and the other. Uh, the development cycles are really limited for what we can do here. Um, it's just different worlds, Derek. And so, yeah, if we're talking higher, which series has the higher technology? F1, period, end of statement. Is there a way to do something to entice F1 manufacturers who play in F1 to come over here? Well, I don't really think so. Uh, those brands are in Formula One for a reason. It's an international series that visits, what is it, 22 different markets or something silly. Uh, it's great when you are promoting your automotive brand to the world as world brands. Uh, for what we have here in IndyCar, it's domestic. It's a big market that we have, which is great. We're fortunate to have Chevy and Honda. Honda obviously playing both an F1 and here. Granted, it is Honda of America funding what we do here. Honda Japan funding the F1 side, but don't think we're going to find anything common here, my friend. Uh, right turn lover, MP. Uh, so the IndyCar hybrid thing is most likely going to have a KERS component and most likely going to have a heat regeneration component in the exhaust stream. It says, I'm aware of five exhaust slash heat regeneration applications, four in F1 and one in the mothballed Porsche 919 LMP1 car is a cheap spec solution in this field, likely. Funny you should mention that right turn lever. Uh, I don't know about the cheap side. I need to get some updates on this because I know the solution, the spec solution IMSA, uh, I keep hearing they've zeroed in on something they don't need the heat regeneration uh what an f1 fans are accustomed to hearing referred to as mguh um because we would need that on the ovals well imsa doesn't do ovals like that everything they do is road racing so a regular curve system would work and i've heard that that solution might actually not be breaking the bank what I don't know is if IndyCar has arrived at the same situation. If IndyCar and IMSA have spoken at all and say, hey, this is what we found. You guys might consider it. Since we have Chevy and Honda playing in both series at the highest levels, maybe this would be smart for them. I don't know these things. Questions I need to ask. The heat-based regeneration side, though, that would be specific to IndyCar for the ovals. That's where I don't know if that's same manufacturer as the curs separate integration cost uh, you know there i know of a number of heat-based energy generation options uh just i truly don't know if and what indycar has come up with here to see if that can come in a single and not stupidly expensive package it's time to take a big swig of my beer. I'm going to go to a practiced observer from Reddit. It says, Marshall, you and others have said on multiple occasions that opening up development, you've capitalized development, which is interesting, on the cars would increase costs. Looking at it in the other direction, what would a lower spec car look like if open development raised costs to current IndyCar budgets? 
Huh. Um, I would say this is already a fairly low spec car. And I don't say that to be mean or negative or whatever towards Delara. Um, just say that when the bodywork came off of the DW12 for the first time, when I saw it in wherever, whenever for the first time, there was nothing that looked trick. It looked common, well understood, well used, uh, well everything. It looked like I would have seen it on a 2003 Lola. Although, granted, I think the Lola might have been a little bit of a higher state back then. But there was nothing on the DW12 that I saw suspension-wise, gearbox-wise, chassis construction-wise, auxiliary layout-wise with radiators and this. You know, there was nothing that I looked at and said, ooh, whoa, that's cool. Yeah, I'd never seen that, or I'd never thought of that before. It looked like just a really straightforward open-wheel car. Nothing wrong with that. Just the point being, I'm struggling to think of a lower-spec car then being subjected to open development and it then coming up to current IndyCar budget. So not saying there's nothing wrong with the question. I just can't find an answer that would follow it as presented. Uh, Just cover this one off quickly by mentioning, I grew up at a time in the sport where teams could modify a lot of things. Make your own suspension, make your own dampers, move this here, change that there, do all kinds of stuff. That changed, and we hear at times, sometimes from folks like me, talking about, man, I wish we could open up development a bit. Well, sometimes that's just old heads like me and others saying, man, we should, you know, just bolt and spec stuff on and off. Yeah, anybody can do that. That's no fun. We want to have fun. We want to enjoy this, right? We want to individualize, personalize this in some way. So that's where some of that comes from. The other angle is, what if we opened up this area or that area? And could that be of interest to a manufacturer? It's really the two swim lanes of questions here, a practiced observer. The first one is, you know, teams like to, teams have great ideas. They'd like some permission to try them out, see if it gives them a competitive advantage. It's more curiosity-based, more human nature-based. The other side is the, well, are there things we could open up where the people who pay a lot of money, those manufacturers to be in the series, not just engine, but again, potentially tire. What about other areas? Electronics, suspension, all kinds of things. Aerodynamic, aerospace. What if we were to open up other areas? That would entice manufacturers who are currently here, but also hopefully bring in more from all kinds of business sectors to come rushing in, learn, develop, market, promote, whatever their thing, by getting to flex their stylistic or creative muscles. 
that's really the area that my brain leans towards the hey the gearbox mechanic has an idea for a new drop gear and it's gonna give us a three percent savings in friction or whatever (laughs) uh that cool but i just figure if we're going to do something like this of opening things back up when they really haven't been open for a long time it need to be in a way that benefits the series as a whole and what's going to benefit the series as a whole wealthy manufacturers in a variety of sectors investing into the sport not in spec parts but in working with the teams directly so this is the thing where i hope indycar continues to ask the michael andretti's and chip ganassi's and roger penske's maybe roger asks himself and ed carpenter's hey if we opened up this area that is currently spec do you think you could or would go and speak to again the aerospace industry the ev industry the name whatever it is industry and strike partnership do you have contacts do you think your salespeople could go and turn this new freedom into a reasonable area of profit for you and also r&d so we can build that culture of our series being a place where name brand companies want to come and take part because there are so few series in the world where you can actually still do that where it doesn't cost you a zillion trillion dollars to participate like formula one like what we used to have in the lmp1 hybrid class so that to me that's the question that needs to keep being asked uh let's see Fairlane 35 says I'm excited to hear we'll have some increased car counts at St. Pete this year. Beer swig. Ooh. I don't know what pipe that went down, but <clears throat> sounds like I've been wolfing down Marlboro's my whole life. Uh, at St. Pete this year, and hopefully just in general throughout the season, I'm sure I'm getting ahead of myself, but I remember the last few years people talking about the changes to the layout in Toronto, meaning we had a pretty tight pit lane. Is there a chance we may have to have some bumping there or i guess any other street circuit where pit space is at a premium yeah there was a concern that indycar expressed i think a year ago two years ago about that very thing hmm yeah i think you're onto something with toronto for sure i'll have to look back at some of the other tracks where concerns were expressed Hmm. No disrespect here. I realize that with the archaeological site that was found basically at pit, the old pit out on the right, plus the new big hotel going up that, you know, pit lane location needed to change the other side of the track. It's now kind of wedged into the loading dock, just outside of the loading dock into the uh, little convention center. (sighs) It just seems like that needs, it seems like there needs to be something better that is devised, keeping in mind what IndyCar hopes and wants will happen, which is increased car count. Uh, Could they be at their limit this year? Possibly. Uh, Do I think they would actually force uh, 
a team to go home? No. That just leads me to believe that this fast reaction they had to make to losing the old pit lane set up on the right side of the track, uh, yeah, there may actually be a real need to try and ask, is there something better we could do? Is there somewhere else we could do this in terms of pit lane? Uh, Simon Roffey says, I've heard the teams build special cars for the Indy 500 that are a sip, slippery, a sippery. That must mean my brain was telling me to sip beer. Ooh, getting down to the good stuff. That are as slippery and free-rolling as possible, Simon says. What limits are placed on what they can do to the bodywork, wheel bearings, etc.? Well, polishing of wheel bearings, uh, provided these are not the sealed type, uh, is a bit of an age-old practice using the bare minimum of grease in those wheel bearings, uh, something that's also another age-old practice. I haven't looked deep enough in the rule books to see if there are any changes to allowable things, Simon, but uh, gearbox is an area that doesn't get a lot of attention in this discussion, but should uh, teams have uh, what's known as a gearbox dyno, gearbox dynamometer, just like you would test an engine on an engine dyno where you are quantifying not only the numbers that it produces, the power, horsepower and torque, but also the methods and speed at which those are delivered. And you can then tune accordingly to bring that torque in sooner, later, sustain longer, same with power, etc. You have actually the opposite that is being sought with the gearbox dyno. And that is to try and polish every piece of rotating, call it uh, seriously baked in rotating item, bearings in particular, uh, go to the lowest friction ones you can find, all in the interest of producing the least amount of friction uh, heading out to the wheels, freeing up as much power as possible by reducing frictional losses in the gearbox and so that's what teams will do with their efforts to produce magical magical gearboxes um, and just love on them like you wouldn't believe and keep trying options and trying and trying and trying and then use that dyno to spin the gearbox up and measure friction uh, how much power is or is not being lost. And so some I know have asked, well, wouldn't that be something you did everywhere? Well, again, the Indy 500 is an aerodrome. It is all about aerodynamic efficiency, frictional efficiency to make the spec amount of horsepower teams have. If one team can save a bit more friction, uh, from slowing things down than the other, well, that is the equivalent of free horsepower and speed. So the amount of time needed to do that with gearbox is exceptional. Uh, I would also say that for road and street courses where a bit of contact and 
knocking corners off the car and crashing and whatever it you know these things happen um would say that there's a, a bit of a constant maintenance and care aspect to those gearboxes that maybe doesn't necessarily fit with them being turned into little jewel-like uh, productions uh, that are really truly saved for the super speedways. Uh, as for the bodywork, Simon, uh, teams can fill gaps and just try and make everything as perfect of a fit as possible. It's not as if teams would go racing at St. Petersburg with, you know, uh, side pods sitting up above, you know, the lip and the joints just being totally wonky and, and causing excess drag and such. Teams will absolutely work to make sure things fit properly, but the effort and time put in to do super speedway body fits that's just an entirely different thing that's where i can't even tell you how many hours are spent moving and nudging and you know like i said filling trying to get every seam perfect so there are no gaps uh that's why (laughs) if you watch uh practice again just say indy 500 you'll see the engine cover come off somewhat frequently side pods not nearly as often Um, and it's quite often a case where let's say you're watching teams at mid Ohio body work will come on and off. might be a little nudge here, a little hit with the side of your wrist. Uh, we get to Indy when we went to Pocono, you'd hear a lot of banging, a lot of bang, bang, boom, not physically punching, but basically it sure seemed like that. Harder hits because things are so snug. That's where you're not inviting air into those little creases to cause drag, to eddy, to slow the thing down, act like a hundred little miniature parachutes at all the intersections between bodywork. So uh, that's where the body fit experts and expertise pays off. And that's why a lot of time is spent to close this, which is, Watch for it again here in May. Um, Someone crashes their primary car on Thursday and qualifying is on Saturday. Boy, depending on the team, they might have a really hard time, Simon, getting into the race. As we heard last year, part of the big Hunkos racing story, they had a road course car that wasn't prepared back at the shop. Uh, because when Kyle Kaiser crashed, the car that had all the everything, the gearbox that was super defrictionated and the bodywork that was super fitinated and everything, it, that was their 500 car. Uh, Fernando as well, I believe. Uh, I think Pato Ward as well when he crashed in the Carlin car. You had a bunch of situations where teams had their primary car that they had loved on and perfected for the super speedway crashed, had to get a backup car ready. It had none of the low friction tricks, none of the body work fit. And all of a sudden, same driver, same engine, possibly same ever, same setup, same, 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 except lacking all those call them 
optimized pieces for the speedway, all of a sudden they're two miles an hour slower. All of a sudden they're three miles an hour, 1.2, whatever it is. Well, (laughs) that is the difference between making and not making the show. Uh, So that's really where this effort uh, pays off, Simon. It's, It's not 10 miles an hour, it's not five, but it's just enough to where you go, oh, and you qualified 11th in the car that was perfected. Oh, you are fighting for your life to get in, and you're running out of ideas on how to get extra speed. Well, it's not because you aren't brave. It's not because you haven't tilted the wing back as much as you can to take as much downforce off. It's that gearbox, because the one that you crashed and snapped in half was the only optimized one you had. Well, that thing is robbing straight line speed, and that air quote, ill-fitting, non-perfected bodywork is robbing speed. There's nothing you can do, man, uh, but just really hope and pray you get in. Uh, where are we going next? Lance Snyder. Hey, Lance. Marshall, one of the pitfalls of a third manufacturer could be enticing a top team to make the leap of faith uh, and sign with you. If Andretti is still seething at Honda in the next 8 to 12 months, could that entice a third manufacturer a little bit more to join them as a top flight team? Uh, with a top flight team, uh, would that maybe make that discussion more open than it was say a few weeks ago yeah uh, we've been through the lotus situation back in 2012 where everyone could kind of see the writing on the wall that they weren't serious and they didn't spend serious money with uh, the judd family and they got what they paid for uh i would say that if this is a serious brand coming in i don't know if you would have teams that would be struggling to be interested keep in mind lance (laughs) although not many of them say this there are some teams on the chevy side who feel as if they don't get enough respect or attention because the bigger teams the more successful teams seemingly get all the love there are honda teams who have the same complaint hey man anytime you need to go testing or you want to go do this or that boy you sure seem to call them Hey, you're running an ad. Boy, We you don't even consider our guys. Uh, would say that the disenfranchised owners from both of the current camps would certainly be open to representing a new manufacturer if that manufacturer was serious. Would also say that knowing how cash-strapped some of those teams would be or are right now, a uh, third manufacturer coming in, even though... And again, I'm using air quotes. Manufacturers don't subsidize the teams. Uh, yeah, we kind of had that veil pierced, didn't we? That could be a pretty good opportunity for those teams to not only receive financial assistance, but also, hey, if you're struggling or arguing that, man, we sure don't get a lot of consideration with the marketing stuff you do, well, ding, ding, ding here's a chance to be at the head of the line with a new manufacturer for that. So I, again, if it's a serious manufacturer, even if it's one where we don't think of in, you know, big racing terms, but we know they're, they've got the money, they've hired the right people and, or have their own internal department that is well known. Um, I don't think it would be so much of a concern if we did, Lance, hear that it was another Lotus-like situation where you go, 
Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know how they think that's going to work, but it isn't. Uh, that's the only scenario where I think this would uh, possibly play out. Let's go to mswizzle83. Hey there, Mr. Swizzle. Haven't heard from you in a little while. Says, hey, MP, I saw a video posted on another subreddit the other day and thought of you. Hopefully it wasn't donkey porn. Uh, could you speak to the issue of speed perception and how you think it could be improved upon in racing? For hashtag me personally. Actually, you didn't say hashtag me personally. You said for me personally. So you may have actually committed the cardinal sin of the podcast. Whew. I think there's too much reliance on the zoom lens and poor placement that causes foreshortening. Wow, that's a really interesting item here, Mr. Swizzle. Uh, as a photographer, my favorite thing to do of all is panning, to shoot pan shots. I have at the bottom of my monopod a little add-on device, swivel device, that helps make this a very smooth and fluid thing. And I would say that I can capture, and I realize you're talking video here, but I'm just using the same thing because it's the same thing. Uh, I can capture some pretty cool speed demonstrating photos up close with a 500 millimeter lens in a pan, provided I have the right background to do it. Uh, if it's a grass, long bed of grass in front of the car, um, then that grass and the blur of that pan can certainly demonstrate that speed. Uh, but yes, uh, being zoomed out certainly helps to show the holy cow that just went across the lens or I did my best to pan with it, but I couldn't keep it because it was going so quickly. Those are things for sure that demonstrate speed massively to people. Uh, here's a question. Does the average person give a crap about speed anymore? I would say they don't. I would say that for fans of motor racing who are, again, already here, you see the speed, know the speed, appreciate the speed. I think many of us just always want more, but I think there's a, just a general appreciation and understanding. Do I think that if producers chose different vantage points to shoot, were able to pan more and demonstrate more of a sense of, wow, look how fast that flashed across the frame that people who didn't know or didn't care would just start watching. No, I don't. Uh, I think the days of real demonstrations of speed Land speed record type stuff. Hey, we set a new closed course over record at 200 and something miles an hour. It's cool when those things happen. Again, unless it's the land speed vehicle breaking 1,000 miles an hour. Like that would be something that I think would make the front page of a choose your news or cable news 
your foxnews.com, CNN, MSNBC, whatever else. I think that kind of thing, vehicle goes 1,000 miles an hour on Earth, first time it's ever happened with a human being in it on wheels. I think that would do it. Uh, new pole position record at Indianapolis, 251 miles an hour. I think maybe you might get that on ESPN.com. Maybe something fluffy and light like a CNN.com, which again is kind of like TMZ and People Magazine with a little bit of politics. You know, maybe. I don't think most of the rest of the world would care. So not disagreeing with you on demonstrations and perceptions of speed and the more of that that can be done, the better and the more it would be enjoyed. That would be great for us. Uh, in terms of all that effort being done or not done, if it weren't to be done, if there was nothing done, would we stop watching racing? No, not a chance. If all that effort and I assume expense was laid out to do this, would it attract new fans? I'm sure we'd get some, but would it be a meaningful number? I really don't believe so. Let's go to Otto Kinzel, who says, What's the who, what, where, why, and when, and how in the old American IndyCar series, AIS? Well, Otto, I have been intending to do some sort of special feature about that uh, on the good old podcast here and probably in written form as well at some point in time. So those are things that are going to be answered properly um, with the amount of words in spoken and written form maybe even video, I don't know, uh, that it is due. Thank you for asking, and thanks for the reminder. I actually wrote it down here that uh, I need to uh, AIS. I think I might have already written that down again. You know what? Maybe you hear the sound of a Sharpie opening, and I'm going to hold my Post-it pad right up to the microphone. AIS. I done wrote it down yet again, uh, but if you know me, that doesn't mean it's going to happen immediately. Um, Jordan Darwin, you know, that guy sounds a lot like the guy who opened the show with a question. Jordan, as we get down to where are we at the last two for the first portion of recording this year, which makes me ever so happy. Jordan says, Marshall, you mentioned recently that teams are independent contractors and the league has no control over them. Would a franchise system in IndyCar give the governing body some control over their teams that it does not have now? Um, well, I would just mildly tweak that intro sentence, Jordan, and say that teams are independent businesses. Uh, they are not independent contractors. Uh, they are not contracted by the league. They're just wholly independent businesses that participate in the league. Uh, the league does not have control over them other than that leader circle contract where by signing that those teams obligate themselves to show up at every round. Um, as for the franchise system, well, that's what we used to have back in the day with cart and it was loved and hated and cart did have control and some control over their teams uh, it frankly ended up being less of a cart 
the sanctioning body in call it home office dictating to the teams ended up being more often than not Jordan the team owners since the team owners were cart you know they unified they came together started this thing and decided to put together obviously their a business that then ran it but uh, the franchise system was effectively the team owner saying, well, hey, we want need value over this, so we're we're now franchises. I sh- would assume that they paid money into uh, the home office there uh, for the series that they created, but uh, as I recall more often than not, it was a group of powerful team owners deciding what other teams could or could not do. Uh, voting systems. Uh, Dale Coyne, fairly famous for being the dissenting voice on, I don't know, uh, everything. Uh, even the stuff that seemed like it was a total no-brainer. Uh, Dale's a bit of a legend to other team owners for always finding the thing no one could think of or possibly even still rationalize why it should be voted down. But yet again, Dale would. Uh, so... Yeah, I mean, a franchise system could, but it would have to be truly something where the home office uh, had a pretty darn big say. I know that if we look at the NBA, where they have a franchise system and so on, that, you know, there's the board of governors, there's the team owners. They all make decisions on whether something can or can't happen uh, in some instances. But, you know, this is uh, a league the home office there is heavily empowered from a decision-making standpoint. Uh, I would say that for obviously IndyCar to have some control over their teams, they don't have now Jordan. The teams would need to concede that power. Um, <laughs> and I'm not laughing at the question at all. I'm just laughing at the, the concept of Roger Penske, who now owns the series conceding power to the people he's employing to run the series and telling him, no, Roger, you can't do that thing. No, sorry, buddy. Or Chip Ganassi saying, oh, yes, I would absolutely welcome giving away control. Or Michael Andretti or Ed Carpenter or, 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 or. Um, The only way I see this happening, Jordan, is if IndyCar crumbles in a new organization formed by the owners of the owners, etc., replaces IndyCar. Uh, the, the horse done bolted the barn. It's gone. It's out. Uh, there's no way you're going to take away power from what is in many instances, supremely wealthy and authoritative figures. So, would a franchise system? Sure. Would anyone there right now sign up for it? I don't think so. Unless, I know Michael Andretti has been a proponent of this, it could be done in a way where whether control's really a method or not, I don't think that's ever been something Michael's spoken about, but actually creating a value for the business. Hey, we I own a franchise. I own an IndyCar franchise. It's worth X amount. Do you want to get into the series? I could sell you mine. I could sell you a steak. Uh, That's the only way I could see this ever going forward if there was real financial uh, value coming back to team owners. 
All right, Brian Cohn, our pal. You are the final question for the night. It's now 10, 10, 12, 34 a.m. Why does IndyCar still place the right front tire changer in harm's way with cars entering pit lane? He says, holding out and lowering the popsicle does the same job of placing the car properly. And while I love as much old school as I can get in my racing, it seems overly risky in the modern era. The extra second a pit stop might take for the right front tire changer to carry the tire and run around to the front of the car seems like an okay trade-off. Also says, welcome back to IndyCar French Fry. Can't disagree here, Brian, on the basic premise. Would just say that if this is a case where the outside front tire changer, often the crew chief in charge of stopping the car, staging the car for the pit stop. Um, If this is a case where those people, those people, if those people were getting hit, were getting injured on a regular basis, even just three, four times a year, I'd say, yeah, yeah, boy, we really got to rethink this. I know that it would be air quote safer if we took them off pit lane. I would just say that it would need to be all or nothing here. Um, The percentage of right front tire changers being injured is very, very minuscule. I mean, not just low, but like it's almost not a thing. When it does happen, I realize that the sky is falling and everyone calls for the end of motor racing again. Not you, not you all, dear listeners, but just the outside world. But again, this just doesn't really happen much. Uh, It it is a statistical blip. I would say, though, that if we're going to pull that right front tire changer off of pit lane, then we need to pull everybody off. Uh, We watched Takuma Sato play Golden Bowling Ball last year in a scary fashion, uh, sending his crew members flying. And, you know, we've seen a couple of instances where wasn't necessarily the outside front tire changer, but other folks getting hit, uh, could be the right rear on an oval or on a wherever, um, getting touched by the car, leaving behind again, I get all that. Um, at least for the running out stage, to me, either you got them all or you don't. Well, not the right rear necessarily because disregard that part. But to me, either we either keep doing it the way we do it or we yank everybody off. Car comes to a halt, a true halt, and then everyone jumps off of pit wall and does their job. Fuelers included. If we're going to say that job is risky, well, again, uh if we're going to disregard the really low percentage of outside front tire changers that get hit and hurt, if we're just going to say, well, they're at risk, then we need to recognize everybody's at risk. And do we still ensure their safety? No. Uh, Again, that uh, outside rear tire changer is always precariously close to 
the person in the pit stall leaving behind them, basically apexing off of their foot. Uh, <laughs> um, just, you know, that that's a thing that makes me cringe more than the right front. It's the right rear or, again, the outside. But I would say, Brian, one way or the other, we either take them all off or we say, you know what, you are grown men and women, you are professionals, we entrust you to do your job. Um, but nothing in the middle, like just taking one off. All right, we'll be back probably tomorrow night to round up the rest of your questions here on the Week in IndyCar podcast. Listener Q&A brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. All right, we are picking up Tuesday evening at 6.23 p.m. I do not have a beer in front of me. I do not have coffee. I do not have a green ham. Uh, there are many things I do not have in front of me. I did, though, spend the day texting and calling and communicating with a bunch of folks in good old circuit of the Americas, talking about the, what, not too many laps that were turned overall. Fascinating stuff there. I would anticipate next week's listener Q&A is going to be chock full of questions Coming out of the two days, will it be three days? We don't know, of Circuit of the Americas. Spring training, quick little note or update. Was texting with our man, Mr. French Fry, Mr. Sebastian Bourdais, who we're so happy we could say in his very first official session for AJ Foyt Racing was P3. Granted, uh, he was 20 seconds off the fastest lap uh, because... They only did one lap in the rain Tuesday morning, but look, we're just, we're, we're going for anything we can. Right. So, uh, I said, Hey, what's the plan for tomorrow? Since we were meant to record our guest show tomorrow with your questions, knowing that he was meant to drive today, step out Dalton Kellett would climb in tomorrow. And as of just a few moments ago, he said he didn't know. So bear with us. Don't know if we are going to record the hamburger and french fry show first one of 2020 tomorrow's plan on wednesday or if it's going to have to wait till maybe thursday when he gets home if indycar doesn't try and extend things into thursday no idea what's going to happen so there's an update saying i have no idea what's going to happen let's pick up with your questions starting off with mark taylor mark thank you for sending this in on the good old book face He says, I've attended several IndyCar races with my teenage son. That's awesome, by the way. Does your son have any friends who might want to go? We're trying to build all the youths we can, get as many youth out to these IndyCar races and grow a bigger, younger audience. Mark says, we always get paddock passes. Spent a lot of time there looking at the cars up close. We often spot differences in the cars. Gurney flaps of various sizes, the occasional winglet, present on one car and not on another, etc., Mark asks, what, if anything, can we interpret about the differences we are seeing between cars? He says, for example, you've talked about Sebastian's and Scott Dixon's different preferences in a car's handling characteristics. What would we look for on the car to see that? Or does that setup of a car involve too many things that we can't see? Dampers, for example, that would tell more of the story of the setup. He says, thank you in advance. Mark also goes on to say, though we've never met, I often think of you and your wife. I appreciate the example you're setting for living life with correct priorities. 
also says, finally, give Founders Brewing Canadian Breakfast Stout a try. Good stuff. Well, thanks for all that, Mark. That That's truly sweet of you. So you'd probably have a hard time spotting setup items that make a Dixie who wants the front of the car to be glued and he'll just live with the back of the car moving around if that's what happens compared to a Sebastian who wants the exact opposite back of the thing must be glued and if the front is skidding along and understeering well he can that's his happy place you would maybe see a tiny bit of that played out in wing settings more road and street course and short oval where you have more wing elements bigger wing elements things that just taking a gander would give you an easier uh Stronger likelihood of being able to tell. Aha! Uh, we see a little bit more wing angle cranked in up front on Dixon's car, maybe a little bit less at the rear, and possibly vice versa on Sebastian's car. But we aren't talking truly like, oh, whoa, I can see, I can tell the two. If you took the colors away off the car, I could just tell that's Dixie's and that is Sebastian's. We're talking fairly minute things uh, in terms of visual differences. And that really, Mark, comes back to one central point. These are extremely, highly, massively refined vehicles. We're talking about balance, both mechanical balance, how the car reacts under acceleration. So basically, lift tilting back on its rear tires, I'm exaggerating, or under braking with the car putting its weight on the front tires, turning, braking, lateral loads, all these things. Then you also have the aerodynamic help, that aerodynamic balance. You often hear drivers talk about center of pressure based on the percentage of front wing angle to rear wing angle, the place within the car from the nose to the trailing edge of the rear wings rear wings i was about to say wing but again i'm using a a road and street and short oval example there is a exact position in the car where you can say this is the center of pressure this is the fulcrum that'll change as you either add front wing moving it forward decrease front wing moving it back add rear wing moving it back take away rear wing moving it forward that will be tuned to suit a driver's handling preferences as well. But again, we're not talking about something where you can just look at the car and go, oh, uh, oh boy, that's vastly different from one driver to the next because these cars are so finely balanced. It's not something where you'd really be able to tell. And to your point, Mark, beneath the skin, the spring rates, uh, anti-roll bar rates, uh, how much the third spring uh, is being used, how heavily it's being used or not being used uh, to control ride, and yada, you know, you start getting into cambers, toes, a lot of things that you will adjust to suit a driver's desires. Those are the things that unless you have done this stuff a lot and know exactly what you're looking at would indeed be a serious challenge 
to tell just standing on pit lane or if you are in the grandstands and have really good set of binoculars or a zoom lens so yeah the it's the minutiae what might be interesting mark if you are heading out to a race sometime soon and i happen to be there drop me a note and maybe we can go meet up i'll see which team will let us go under the tent and you mentioned dixon you know might be interesting to see uh, just take a, a little visual assessment of his car versus Felix Rosenquist's, and if anything jumps out that you go, oh, okay, now I see a little bit about what makes one driver happy and the other driver happy in a different direction. So we've seen those two guys like very similar cars, so that might not be the team, but you can, if you get up close, kind of figure out some of the minor differences. Let's go to Ed Joris. This is Marshall been looking at the new banked final corner at Zandvoort in Holland, done to increase passing into turn one. Are there any corners at an IndyCar track you would consider banking to achieve the same result, making the track more racy? This is maybe the keyhole at, or, or turn one at Mid-Ohio, or at Laguna, adding banking to turns three, four, five, and tightening up the one that follows. Hmm. Well, the first one that came to mind, and it's just because I clearly have some broken wiring in my brain, was the festival corners at Portland. <laughs> what if, if, instead of it just being flat, where somebody forgets that they need to break and they win the Golden Bowling Ball Award, maybe you add some really awesome banking early right so not just when you get to the corner realize we would have to move some grandstands around but maybe just past pit out we have something that kind of veers to the left so we actually open up the track on the left side where you can kind of get into that banking bowl and use that to take the inside lane into uh, the festival corner there before you have to make that harsh left but probably be a situation where that might be the magic carpet ride. Uh, maybe it'd have to be elevated, you know, like there's it's 10 feet above the track until the very end. This is kind of turning into a hot wheel loop-de-loop thing, right? Um, so the cars that do blow through and get it wrong can go under it instead of crashing into the car, the top of the car going through the big old banking there. But But then they'd have to slow down really hard to make that left-hander, if not just get launched into the cars already making the left-hander. So this is a really flawed idea I have, but I'm gonna I'm not going to abandon it. I think that might be really fun. Hey, are you gonna do the crazy kind of almost loop-de-loop, big sweeping overpass banking into turn one, but then and so potentially bypass all the people crashing into each other, but for those who make it through, you have to slow down a lot as the banking kind of eases its grade and just right before you would need to make that left turn and get inserted there you know you might win the the first portions of the corner but you'd be at almost a dead stop by the time you had to make that hard left that's the one i think would be a lot of fun the other i guess we could look at could be the final corner complex where drivers go flying through that little chicane then have to break 
what if you flew through that chicane and there was like two to three wide banking so big old like nascar style you know 50 foot tall wall that was just banking that you flew around and it dumped you out onto the front straight i mean wouldn't that be kind of that would be amazing uh laguna we already got enough roller coaster there it's kind of the original roller coaster track that i can think of with the corkscrew um so yeah uh, i'd say no on that anywhere else really stand out again road america is just amazing we don't need to do anything there um i'm gonna go with portland uh just because i'm bound and determined to believe that that's the right answer let's go to ross porter hey ross as we get down to the last couple of questions, Ross Porter says, Marshall, we often hear the question addressed to drivers talking about their favorite performing car they've driven throughout the years. But I'm curious, through your time as a mechanic, if you had any particular chassis that was a favorite to work on and the one that might have been a mechanic's nightmare that sent you cussing imaginary engineers um, and what set those cars apart. Ross also says, continue prayers to you and your wife. In the daily battle of healing for Mrs. Pruitt. Oh, thank you, Ross. Uh, well, so yeah, I, as a young race car mechanic at how old would I have been? 18 working for a pro racing prep shop at Sears point by the name of Fife Ridge racing. We were a dealer of the amazing San Clemente, California manufactured, swifts so i really spent i can't even tell you how many swifts i have worked on have built uh from scratch uh rebuilt uh reskinned those tubs yada 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 um the swift db1 formula ford it's just I don't know if a more beautiful Formula Ford has ever been made. And it's just such a delight to work on, to everything on. It felt special. Just always felt special. And this is going to be something that might really amuse some of you who have seen a Swift DB1 and know what it looks like. It's just this little arrow. It's a little missile of a thing. There was a point in time in my life, in my youth, where I fit in one of those. <laughs> Granted, uh, my leg, I'm not super tall by any means. Uh, I mean, I'm six, about six one, a little bit over six foot, maybe six one, whatever. Um, I was narrow enough to fit into one. Well, that's the amazing part. But my legs were long enough to where uh, I had a bit of a hard time getting them down into uh, the car properly. So one of the things that we would do at our at the prep shop, so the a prep shop, for those who don't know, in addition to our running a, you know, in a variety of professional racing series with our team owner, uh, who is also a, a pretty amazing driver, guy by the name of Bob Lesnett, main business was preparing and running cars for clients uh so 
we would have multi-car teams. Lesnet would be the team leader and the best driver, but then we would have two or three or however many other cars purchased by clients that we would run, prepare, and take care of on their behalf. Part of that kind of arrive and drive scenario is those folks are, you know, really pampered a bit, or at least all the dirty work and the monotony is taken out of the experience. And so where you would see other drivers potentially, you know, driving their cars to pre-grid for whatever session, uh, this is more on the like SCCA club racing weekends compared to the pro racing weekends. Uh, we, as the mechanics, whichever cars we worked on, we'd jump in, fire them up, drive them down to wherever. All the client would have to do is just walk down to grid, put on their helmet and suit. We'd buckle them in, off they'd go. We'd be on pit lane with the stopwatch, you know, keeping a lap chart. And if they had anything they needed, they'd come in, talk to us, we'd help them, whatever. Uh, check or set tire pressures, so on and so forth. Well, uh, I forget whose Swift DB1 it was, but I climbed in, <clears throat> drove it down to grid. Wasn't all that far from the shop, but drove it down to grid and because I think there was really nothing else to do, uh, nothing else going on, uh, I just sat in it and just stayed. Well, <clears throat> I think we might have gotten there a little bit early, me and some of uh, the other mechanics in the cars we drove down. So we were just sitting there, yada, 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 waiting to uh, pull them on to pre-grid because the class of cars uh, ahead of us had yet to leave. So we're just sitting there, no big deal. BSing. I'm in there, got my right foot on the uh, pedal stop where you'd rest your foot uh, down in that very narrow pedal well. Um, and so just sitting there BSing, so on and so forth. Someone's out, oh, you know, go ahead, go ahead and uh, get moving and start pulling the cars over to grid. Great, did that. Flip the ignition switch, hit the starter. And <laughs> I'm so thankful. I did not have to pay for a brand new Formula Ford engine because in my fairly limited powers of thinking, in my head, where my right foot and my shoe size is about a 13, so not too tiny, I had wedged it up against the basically the, the stop and thought that I was great just kind of propping myself in there, doing my best to make my legs fit. Well, I, I really somehow forgot that, no, the, uh, the, the foot rest, the, the pedal rest for your foot was actually on the left. It's something you'd use to kind of brace yourself if need be under braking or otherwise. It wasn't on the right. That's where the throttle pedal was and the throttle only. Not, uh, there was no anything to rest my foot on on the right. So where I felt my right foot depressed all the way, helping to prop me up, uh, again, what I thought was a little piece of angled aluminum that I was pressing on. No, you moron. That was a throttle. That was completely wide open. And the motor, having sat there for a while, was already cool. Everything was cold. And so I kind of did the thing that you just don't ever do, which is start up a motor and have it go to absolute maximum redline in a blink of an eye. So I hit the starter thinking I'm just going to move my foot over and blip the throttle a little bit. Instead, I hear, <laughs> ah, 
and it jarred me. It, it surprised me. It truly threw me for a bit of a loop because I just couldn't fathom what had happened. And then I, my brain said, well, no, idiot. Uh, you kind of, even though you work on this car, supposedly, and know it, and you're telling folks it's your favorite that you worked on uh yeah actually you kind of got the stuff in the pedal box wrong and so it took about three seconds of maximum throttle for me to realize what had happened and i just threw my hand at the ignition switch and shut the thing off and luckily there was no giant puddle of oil beneath the car uh no rods thrown out the side uh i got away with one there ross and funnily enough i had heard the tale of this happening to someone else years earlier and it actually led to the oil filter basically being fired off the side of the motor like a mortar round (laughs) so I got lucky on this one. Uh, I just figured I'd throw that in because there you go. But yes, at one point in time, I fit in a Swift DB1, kind of, sort of. And it just, I, there's just art, just art to look at. Dominant cars of their day and the best. And I've been really fortunate to work on a lot of Swifts, whether it's Formula Ford 2000s, DB3s, DB6s, Sports 2000s, DB2s, DB5s, uh, the DB4 Formula Atlantics, which I just loved. Granted, some of the access up front, getting to the shocks and whatnot, really not super easy. You'd need kind of skinny forearms, and I didn't have super skinny forearms. But, yeah, I'm a Swift guy, man. And there are a lot of other cars I've worked on where it's like, are you kidding me? (laughs) I get to work on this? Uh, Working on a 1990 Spice Pontiac IMSA GTP car was just magical. But, yeah. Uh, that DB one was amazing. The one that we're cussing on, um, I don't remember the exact model. I think our friend and listener, Brian Cohn, who uh, sent in a question here earlier about the uh, right front tire changers. I don't remember the exact model, but I believe it's uh, on Brian's Facebook page. It's a Dulon D U L O N formula Ford. Uh, one of our great clients, gentleman who passed away years and years and years ago, um, he was bog slow. Uh, I remember his first name, Tom. I am sadly forgetting his last name. Sweetheart of a guy. Uh, didn't always find full throttle for sure. Uh, just was not particularly fast, but he loved racing that formula Ford, that yellow Dulon, whatever chassis model designation it was. I have never hated a race car more than that thing. It was, I may as well, Ross, have just said, I'm not going to work on this car. If one of you could, that's great. I'm just going to go over in the corner and grab a razor blade and cut my hands and arms and then grab some safety wire really you know jagged edge to it and just poke it into the ends of my fingers that thing was just the biggest shit box ever and don't get me wrong it wasn't a falling apart shit box i mean it was fully prepped fully everything 
it's just a piece of hot garbage. Uh, there are screens in front of the radiators on the side, and those things are just always snagging clothes or body parts or burning you. Yeah, if you had to reach in to get something or to check a nut, tighten a nut and bolt during prep, what, I mean, even trying to be as careful, you know, uh, as careful as can be. Oh, man. Yeah, it, it just... When I think of that car, I think of Tom, who we loved, and he was such a beautiful guy. And then I think of his car, and I think of nothing but pain. It's a bit like the little electric board game operation, where you try and pull out the little pieces without touching the sides, which goes, that was the Doolon and working on that thing, and just constantly trying to move your hands and contort it in some ways. Oh, yeah, uh, the Band-Aids that were consumed at Fife Ridge Racing were pretty much 100% related to that Doolon. And having been the junior newest member of that team for a good while, you never guess who was put on Doolon prep duty. Yeah, there we go. Uh, let's go to Joshua Ponce, who says, Marshall, I just read on motorsport.com. We've, I don't know if we've ever mentioned that site on the show, but uh, my good friend David Malsher works there and writes good stuff, so no issues at all. I uh, just read on that site that Marco Andretti is going back to driving school, Rob Wilson's driving school, to boost his prospects. He says, I know from the article, it states that in 2013, where he did this, it led him to finishing fifth in the championship. Do you think that maybe there could be a turnaround from him following the driving school this season? Of course, Joshua. I, I absolutely do. I hope, hope Marco is able to get more from himself. Marco comes up about every, what, three episodes where we talk about kind of sort of the same thing in some way. Should he retire? What's his problem? Can he be better? What's worked in the past that isn't working today? I read the same thing. Obviously, I'm not in CODA, so I'm trying to just see what other folks are putting out and see what I'm missing. Um, and so looking at that, it made me very happy, Josh, that we would have Marco committing to doing the thing that I would say he probably needed to make a annual commitment every year. Hey, if this thing works and it has helped me, maybe I need to do more of it. Uh, not just do it once. I know it's probably a really abstract thing, but, you know, if you've been going to 12, if you have been struggling with something, went to a 12-step program, and it had a very positive and immediate effect on your life, I would just think, even if you're, quote, better, it'd be strange to say, well, I'm never going back to one of those meetings. I'm all good. You go, well, but what if you start slipping? And when you do start slipping, you go, yeah, but you know, I, I already went there. Uh, why would I need to go back? I don't know. This, I'm really glad that he has made this decision. I can't speak to why this is going to happen seven years later. I would also say just, you know, 
and I realize that weather could be the answer, but you know, this is something where I would think we're talking about, I've already been over three times since the end of the season and I'm going back for a fourth, uh, or I'm hiring Rob or one of his instructors to come over here and spend time with me. Um, I mean, I don't pretend to know Marco's finances. I am fairly confident in saying though, that finances are really not a major concern in this regard. So glad he's doing it. Not sure what has happened in the intervening years. He mentioned some technique items needing to slow down, slow his feet down, his hands down, technical things that he has lost track of that Rob Wilson uh, and his driving school can help. I think that's great. I mean, seriously, what I would say is outside of the technical items, Marco's, it's not mental fragility. He's not fragile, but there is a bit of fragility when it comes to staying in the right headspace. So as we've discussed ad nauseum, his tendency is to go negative and it's one thing to critique yourself. It's another thing to just go dark on yourself and keep going dark. And I would say spiral. So you know, Simon Pagino talks about working with uh, sports psychologist, racing-ish psychologist Jacques Dallaire. I know that there are other drivers who work with sports psychologists. I do not know if that is something that Marco does. I would say that while the technique of driving can always be improved and spending more time with Rob Wilson can only benefit him or any other driver. The things that I've seen and heard from Marco for years tell me that his view, his approach, where his mind is at, his focus the ability for him to fall out of that focus if things don't go well. Just the all the bits between the ears for someone like Marco, who is very smart and very skilled, that is the least developed area that I know of if we're talking about his craft. And if you take someone like Pagino, who, again, very smart, but recognizes beyond intelligence and talent and reflexes and all these and motor skills that guy treats the gray matter between his ears as the most vital and most important tool he has and so working on that staying in the right mental place to get the most out of himself on a consistent basis that's what this guy champions more than anything. He does all the fitness stuff. He does, you know, he does everything that everybody else does, but you don't see Simon with the generic rise and grind Instagram posts in the morning. Uh, his approach is a bit different and I'm not claiming Simon's the best IndyCar driver ever. I'm just saying that here's a guy who realized that to get the best out of himself, he has to have his head 
his focus in the right place. Then everything else flows. I don't know if Marco has been seeing a sports psychologist. I don't know if Marco has been seeing a psychologist of any kind. Again, I don't know. I would hope that that would be something he would consider if he is not and has not. Because the technical stuff, that's great. But when you're having a great run, you're in second place, possibility of a win, and driver X uh, forgets to brake and just blows you out in the brake zone, race over, throwing the helmet, throwing a tantrum, feel like, here we go again. It's all crumbling. All the work I put in during the offseason at the driving school. I mean, see, none of it matters. That's the thing that if we're going to get the best version of Marco again, I'd say that's the thing that needs the most work. Throw in one other little anecdote here from my friend Mark Hotchkiss. I was on his car at Genoa Racing during the 96 Indy Lights season. So Mark was on pole. We were on pole at the Cleveland Grand Prix. Fantastic. Mark, very talented driver. Really important achievement for him, middle of the season kind of thing, trying to solidify a good run to the end of the championship. And start from pole, for those of you who remember Cleveland, Airport track, wide open in many places. Well, especially at the start. I mean, it's a freaking runway. You could take 50 different lines from left to right and still make the corner. Well, uh, good old Alex Padilla, who had talent, just didn't have all of it once the green flag waved. And Mark, racing down to the first turn, which is a very sharp right-hand corner, uh, didn't air quote leave the inside lane open it's just not a place where people went because there's all kinds of dirt and debris and crap if you go there unless you've run through there intentionally many times to clear it out you're going to have no grip under braking uh everybody seemed to remember this except for alex who said oh look ha the 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 path is opened the, the golden light is shining upon me to go down to the inside to the right. We're no, why is no one else going here? And indeed, uh, forgot that, hey, buddy, there's no grip. You The minute you hit the brakes, it's going to be like you're on ice. And that's exactly what he did. And Mark, who was starting from pole, uh, got freaking mollywopped in the right side pod, uh, you know, broke the car, Game over. And I was livid. We all wanted to go over there and just knock the crap out of Padilla. Um, We didn't, but we really wanted to. We were really mad and wandered down to where they uh, grabbed Mark's car and deposited it in one of the runoff areas and, you know, saw him, got to him. And we were just like, again, livid. I don't remember what the next race was, but. You know, we're a little, you know, young and monkey-like, and we're going to get him, or, you know, we're going to kick his ass, or we're going to take him out the next time. That son of a bitch, and man, he ruined the... And Mark, who's a couple years older than us, just said, hey, it's over. It's done with. Can't change it. We're moving on. If we just did this now, got pole, well, we can do it again. So, it's over. Put it behind you. Don't, don't carry that with you. 
That isn't going to help us in any way. That is the past. We're now in the present. Fix this car. Get ready for the next race. And at whatever age I was, 24, 25, it was a really good wake-up call. Josh, it was a really good wake-up call because, you know, I'm not saying I still didn't want to knock out Padilla, and I'm sure others uh, had that, that sentiment as well. It's just a really smart thing, and it showed why Mark was so good at what he did and so exceptional in his approach to racing. I wish he had been able to go on to IndyCar because I think he could have been pretty darn good. But nonetheless, at the Indy Lights level, Mark had that ability to, instead of throw his helmet and MF the world and whatever, nope, I am compartmentalizing that. I'm mad. I wish it didn't happen, but I, okay. In the past, moving on, I'm not going to let this ruin my season. If we can get Marco to that place, man, uh, the fifth that he earned in 2013, um, there he could absolutely do that again. All right, we have three questions to go, starting with, I need a name, please, from Reddit. This is MP, a few months ago you mentioned a notable European team evaluating an IndyCar program for 2020, but more likely for 2021. It says, with 2020 off the table, could you expand on any other developments there? I would love to. I can't, though, because while it might not be the full-time thing, uh, there's still a possibility that team will be a co-entrant in an event or two this year. So I'd love to, but I can't. So uh, just know that it is not uh, completely out of the possibility of us having a very real reason to discuss it penultimate question i think this might be a first from wedgius w-e-d-g-i-u-s from reddit he says similar questions are coming in but i'll allude to it again could andretti's apparent ire with honda plus penske's influence lead to uh, not lead to not andretti switching to chevy but to the pot being even sweeter for a new engine manufacturer and who could that new partner be is Andretti has ties to a Bavarian outfit who was rumored to be sniffing around last year. Though to your point, they're not very interested in anything running on gasoline anymore. Uh, that being, I believe, the Volks of the Wagon. Uh, Wedgius also says, uh, this is probably too far off to think about, but to what degree would such a split affect Andretti's driver lineup? Would Rossi uh, pick team over engine? And how tightly has Herta been pulled into Honda's orbit? These are great questions. Great penultimate questions. Rossi's a Honda guy. So, yeah. uh, I would have to assume, based on the fact that he's ridgelining himself at Baja and you name it, uh, he's someone who, you know, team Penskeing himself with an Acura from the same Honda performance development group. I would say that if any changes were to happen in the future uh, on engine manufacturer partner for Andretti, um, I'm guessing that Rossi might be more aligned with an engine manufacturer than anyone else. Obviously, Colton Herta has been, you know, through his father, the two of them have been Honda folks for a long time. Brian's also a Hyundai guy, though. Um, 
and I think we're going to continue to hear more about Brian's racing endeavors with Hyundai. Not necessarily talking IndyCar or open wheel, but I just think that there's a lot more coming there in the future as Hyundai seems to be growing their presence here with his team. I would say for sure, Scott Dixon, Alexander Rossi, Colton Herta would be the three drivers that jump out immediately as ones that Honda would not want to let go uh, and would try and have personal services contracts with something to make sure that they stay in the family. Coming back to the Andretti switching thing, maybe, you know, this is a bad thing. We know that it went down in a bad way. Uh, We definitely put on the pants first, then the underwear. I know I also mentioned that, you know, is this something that'll be forgotten once the end of this contract comes up? Maybe not. Michael has a pretty long Andretti. Michael has a pretty long Andretti. I hope that becomes a T-shirt because it's too stupid. Uh, I'll wear that T-shirt as well. Um, Michael Andretti has too long of a memory and also a penchant for feeling like he's being put upon. uh, I think to fully let this go. Only thing I maybe haven't added to this is, you know, this wasn't good. This went down bad. Uh, what can make folks happier? Uh, business. Uh, is there something financial? I'm not talking about writing a check necessarily, but hey, could it be a sports car program? Could it be a something else? Is there something we can do to make up for this? Where, again, we're not just writing a I'm sorry check, but actual business or incentives that show you we love you, we want you, we want you to stay with us once this recently signed contract extension is up. Um, Assuming that there's money there to do that, I gotta believe that would be the sentiment because I cannot picture a scenario where losing Andretti Autosport would be anything but a catastrophe for Honda. It's not like there's a big team that would come back their way. Roger Penske's not leaving Chevy. He co-owns the company and co-founded the company that makes those motors. So after that, we're talking Aero McLaren SP, new Chevy partners. They're going to welcome them back. Yeah, sure. Uh, Ed Carpenter Racing. Yeah, Ed, he's only got the most American team in IndyCar. Um I'd just say Wedgius that it's probably dawned on our seriously good friends at HPD and Honda that uh, whatever we need to do to make sure Michael is happy and we're in a good place, uh, we need to do that because without them, and no disrespect to Jip Ganassi Racing, Ray Hall, Adam, and Lanigan, and the other Honda teams, but these are the ones that are demonstrating they are most capable to be up front on Honda's behalf. Final question of the episode, and I'm happy we're here, and I love the question as well. Comes from our pal Brett Ross. Says, MP, if you were to replace the Beastie Boys with IndyCar drivers, who are the three IndyCar drivers you would choose, and which music video would you have them redo? Uh, (laughs) 
Ah, Brett, thank you. I needed this. This is a, a welcome, welcome close to the episode. So, huh. so we have, I mean, I guess we have some informal Beastie Boys as well, which we might, you know, we're not going to rope in any of them. Um, uh, okay, where do we go? Uh where do we go for our beastie boys? I mean, that's that's a hard that's one of the harder questions. Uh Ad Rock, I mean, we're looking for kind of the jokester. Uh MCA, right? A little more serious, little, you know, a little earthier, a little more direct. But the glue guy, right? Definitely. Yauk was the 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 glue guy of the band, the late Adam Yauch, unfortunately, and Mike D, right? Kind of the little bit of the in-between the two of them personality-wise. Wow. I, oh, boy. I feel like I'm going to fail on this. I feel like I'm going to fail on all of them. Let's go with Mike D first, uh, then MCA and Ad-Rock. Uh, where do we go with Mike D? I know he seems to be the included in almost every one of these types of, of questions. I always come to him because he has such a rich and versatile personality, even if it isn't always a big showy thing. There's a little bit of stoic to Mike D, a little bit of blunt, but there's some funk behind it. There's there's some soul behind it. It's got to be Alexander Rossi to me. I know, I always... Rossi's always there for me, but that it's set out of love and respect. Truly. Um, definitely Mike D Alexander Rossi MCA. Oh, Oh boy. This is the one I'm struggling with. I mean, the first I want to say Ed Carpenter, cause that'd be the funniest thing ever. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm just not going to say anymore because I'll get myself in trouble. Um, boy, who's that? Who's that kind of straight delivery guy? You know, for the cause, down for the cause type. I mean, no, not Max Chilton. Ah, this is great, Charlie Kimball. It's got to be Charlie Kimball. Uh. And I think I've heard Charlie reference the Beastie Boys in the past, maybe. Uh, he, Charlie keeps up a little bit on pop culture. Yeah, uh, I think MCA might be Charlie Kimball. I don't know if Charlie can flow. Hell, I don't think Rossi can flow. But we're not, right, we're not saying they have to be able to rap. We're just, all right, the police are coming. Apparently, I don't think they like my picks. All right, Ad-Rock, that, that's the closer, just lively bundle of energy, agitator, got flow for sure, got a swagger for the entire group. Where do we? I mean, I, I, I've someone came to mind immediately. I'm looking down the list just to be sure. It's got to be Pato Award, right? I mean, that that's the Pretty Little Pony in the series, right? I mean, he he's just all about the swag uh all about the flow 
I don't know if he's ever even heard of the Beastie Boys. He's like seven years old. I get that. But he's the little Energizer bunny. I could see him bouncing around, just going absolutely nuts. Uh, so I think we got our IndyCar drivers as Beastie Boys. Uh, which song, which video would we have them redo? I mean... I'm having to look through. I'll, I'll readily admit, I'm. If you hear the clicking, I'm having to look through iTunes because I've got a lot of songs swimming through my head. Uh, I mean, Intergalactic kind of comes to mind. I think that might be the perfect song to have them redo. We got robots. They're you know a mechanical thing. Uh, who would who would play the robot though you know one thing just really random observation i think it was ebay maybe five years ten years ago the robot from the intergalactic video was on ebay i mean right (laughs) of those things that if you had the money like you'd kind of win life you know someone shows up at your house for a party and you see the original intergalactic robot i mean you you win life right there for sure so i think that would be my choice that would absolutely be my choice all right well this has been a fun episode as usual thank you for the great questions we will be back next week with i'm sure plenty more looking forward to finding out when the french fry and i are going to record our guest show it is 7 12 p.m on a tuesday night And I am actually going to get this sucker loaded up and posted right now. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers. By the way, I hope you like the uh, the new music bed that I've got going here. I decided to change out the new one I rolled out the beginning of January just because, well, I like that. This just, yeah, I'm feeling it a little bit more. Thanks again to the Justice Brothers. TorontoMotorsports.com. JJ Gertler, send me that email, even though I know I have it. Give me your email address again, and we'll get you sorted out here. And also our friends at Bell Racing Helmets USA.